Welcome everyone to Idiots with Idioms. I am your co-host Ethan Arsh, joined as always by my partner in idiocy, Marcello De Giorgi. Today we have a very interesting episode. We are looking at idioms that come from the U.S. military. So it's an American English episode specifically focused on military idioms. Of course, military idioms play a huge role in English, particularly I think in American English, but we can get into that plenty later. Before, uh, let me hand it over to my co-host who can bring you today's idiom of the week. Hello everyone. Hi Ethan. So let's start right away with the first idiom. I found something which is related to, to military and to war. To meet your Waterloo. I'm recording from Brussels, so I'm literally 50-60 kilometers from Waterloo. This is where in 1815 Napoleon was defeated by the commander, the Duke of, of Wellington. Since then, to meet your Waterloo has taken the meaning of meeting your destiny and to meet your, your defeat. It has been used in uh, many literary works, as, as for example in Sherlock Holmes, where Sherlock says, we have not yet met our Waterloo, Watson, but this is our Marengo. Marengo was the other battle uh, fought in Italy in which Napoleon was, uh, was the winner. I've been thinking about this because Waterloo is something really important and it has entered the, the English language because it's one of the most important you know, battles for, uh, for, for England. In Italy, we, we have Caporetto. If you say that something is a Caporetto, it means that it was a huge defeat because it was the, the biggest defeat in uh, the First World War. I've been thinking, maybe, Ethan, you can uh, help me out. Do you have something like this, uh, the name of a battle uh, in the U.S. that speaks for itself? Um, we, I don't know, you sometimes hear people say that this is, this is a Vietnam, like this is a really bad quagmire of war, but not so often, not as ubiquitously. I think the thing you hear most is this is, a, this is someone's Waterloo. And to say something is a Vietnam is a, is a different, slightly different meaning because it's, um, it's not a, just a huge outright failure. It's a long pronounced gradual kind of defeat, I guess, or a long pronounced gradual quagmire is, is the way I would put it. But I am actually going to ask our guest today to weigh on in this because our guest is Andy Hoffman. I will let him introduce himself a bit more, but suffice it to say he is exceptionally qualified to talk about military culture and military language. So yeah, I'm Andy Hoffman. I am a uh, first lieutenant with the United States Marine Corps. I'm currently training with other lieutenants at the basic school in Quantico. So I'm doing field exercises with my, my peers here as we get ready and decide which jobs people are going to have in the Marines. I will be an attorney myself. And as we're going forward in this, I just want to say that uh, anything, that any opinions that I have are my opinions. They're not in any way representative of the Marine Corps. As to do with specific battles, I honestly couldn't think of anything either. Waterloo is, is pretty synonymous, I think, even in the U.S., partially because of the ABBA song for me. But I was going to uh, say, I'm pretty sure most people just know it from ABBA. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I the the quagmire with Vietnam too. I would I would agree is a little more apt than a specific battle. I, I guess D Day might be something where just like it's a big landing day would be like a D Day, but that's the only one I can think of that would be a specific battle. What what about Little Big Horn? I know it from westerns. I think it may have fallen out of 
like more popular language recently? That's a good question. Like definitely it's a big American, like it's, it, it's definitely Custer's Waterloo, I guess. Maybe off the record, I have a, another question. Like why always defeats? Yeah, I think it's defeats and massacres, I think are certainly hold more. Um, you hear a lot about like My Lai or um, uh, what's the other Western one where they they rode in and just um, they massacred them. You, you hear about those used a little bit more um, in common language. I, th- I think partly it's it's more dramatic. Uh, a, a loss is a little more dramatic than a victory in, in certain situations. So concerning Little Bighorn, it's interesting, actually, the the usage of this expression in print, at least it had a moment like where it was being used a lot in the 60s the and then since then it's actually been a super like it's declined quite a bit and so right now at least in the most in the recent few years it's been used like increasingly less at least in print language it's difficult to say why because it's not like anything happened in the 60s that would make it used super commonly unless maybe like a movie came out about the battle in the 60s is the only thing I could think of but yeah I think it's it's not something you hear all the time anymore, for sure. You definitely don't hear it as often as someone describing a, a Waterloo. And now I'm really trying to think of a battle, like an, a battle that has entered that has entered lexicon that's a victory. We must have some that are battles that, like there must be some that are battles that have been won. Yes, any- I can also think about, I was it's like trying to take Mo- Moscow in the winter or taking on Russia in the winter. Again, yeah. a losing one. Yeah, that's a good point. Or when people call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. Yeah. Um, That's like all about the aggressor losing. Before the show, Andy shared with us some idioms that are used commonly in military settings, but are not used so commonly in general American English. And we wanted to touch on those because we think those are really interesting. And so the first one that we wanted to talk about was the expression uh, act like a boot. So Andy, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so a boot is someone, it relates to boot camp. So boot camp is where you first come in for enlisted members, they go and they go to, they go and they learn their basics and they get broke down and they get yelled at and you have no hair and you're just like, you're, you're just one of many, they kind of crank you through an assembly line. And so then when you hit the the actual like fleet marine force acting like a boot is still acting like you're in boot camp often it's related to like, how people dressed or like wearing backpacks tucking in polos into dress pants all these things are act things that you know you do in boot camp and then if you continue to do them it's because you're acting like a boot it's like a derogatory term for somebody who hasn't really kind of gotten out of that boot camp mindset and i'm not sure if it's used outside of the marine corps i've never heard it I mean, definitely not outside of the military. Yeah, it's a fun one. Um, and I'm certainly a boot. I haven't <laughs> uh, gone out and worked in the Fleet Marine Force yet. Um, and so often they'll call boot lieutenants because um, we haven't done anything yet. We haven't really worked. So would it be too much of a stretch to say that like this kind of is indicative of like an unofficial hierarchy? Like in addition to all of the formal hierarchies in the military, like there's also some informal hierarchy that's kind of demonstrated by this? Oh, for sure. Um, you talk about a, like a lieutenant can be a boot, even though they're, they're like, we're officers and we were more highly ranked than people. Um, 
there's a great comic called Terminal Lance, which makes fun of uh, military culture. It's just uh, like a strip comic. And um, there's a great one where they talk about how they make all the boots go do the work, like this police call, and the lieutenant asks if he has to participate. And some people who are, you know, enlisted do say like, yes, you do have to go. You get, you have to go clean up also because you are a boot. So it's certainly an informal experience hierarchy. In terms of that hierarchy, like you see it mostly in kind of these informal situations, right? So like things like cleaning or I don't know what else is, is the unpleasant work that comes with the day-to-day job, but like does it show up in more formal situations as well, or mostly like in, in a situation like cleaning? It's a, it's a pretty informal term. Uh, another situation would be where somebody messes up just like paperwork or does something really dumb. And they're like, why would you ever do it that way? Well, it's because he's a boot. They don't, they don't know what's going on. He's, uh, they're confused. If they're a boot, they'll get over it. They'll figure it out eventually. Nice. It sounds almost like the way you would say in university, like, oh, this person's just a freshman. Um, sometimes, literally, like, they're they're a freshman, so they're just figuring things out. Or for me, what uh, my thing was, I would always, uh, not always, but pretty often get a little, drink a little bit too much too fast, even when I was an upperclassman. And then everyone would say, oh, what a freshman. And then I was too drunk to respond. <laughs> so I just had to take it. Uh, but um <laughs> That's a but real yeah, boot move. Yeah. Yeah. Total, total. Now I know what I was, another word to describe myself. So I got that going for me. It's also, it can also be related to the world of sports, a rookie mistake. It seems that, you know, if you're a newcomer, you need to show something to, to the people that are in the team, in the university, in this case, in the corp. Yeah, certainly. You can, eventually everybody quits being a boot. Well, maybe not. Some people probably stay, <laughs> but like some people, you know, as an upperclassman still make freshman moves, but um, most people develop out of it. Another idiom that you shared with us is the expression uh, blue falcon. Uh, I'll let you explain what this means, but before we do that, I want to uh, just remind everyone that this is not a profanity-free podcast. So with that, I will let Andy explain what Blue Falcon means. Yeah, so a Blue Falcon, the closest um, way to describe it is that it's a buddy fucker. That's what everybody, it's like a way to say that without having to use profanity. So it's someone who, at the expense of their peers or at their expense of others, will do something to make themselves look good. Um, usually it's in the context of uh, you're dealing with a superior and the person will go and do something that creates more work for everyone else to make themselves look good. What's an example of something that could do that? A good one was we were in a meeting once where we were talking about how the person for at the time had a, a billet or was in a job that was in charge of us. And we were talking about how they were just saying yes to whatever um, their superior wanted, even if it took more work from us. And so we were in this meeting and the captain who was above us comes in and says, why didn't you, um, you, we need to get counts in person. We need to have like counts of our gear in person handed in. And the our peer who was in the position of authority at that time said, you know, we, we turned those in already via um, 
email said, well, we're not using email anymore. And instead of just saying that, you know, like, oh, that's, that's how we're doing it. We, sh we shouldn't go do that again. Instead of sticking up for people, instead of saying like, oh, this is how we've been doing it for weeks. This is how like the system works for us. They're saying, oh, no problem. We'll get right on it. We'll make sure that we do it exactly the way you want, because it'll make us look good and it'll help us in like our evaluation. And so then they, we had to break and send everyone off in different directions, waste like half an hour when this was done a long time ago to come back and, and get it all done. And so that was kind of a uh, a blue the people that term was definitely used that he was being a blue falcon for not just saying like you know this is how we've been doing it sir we'll 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 rectify it for tomorrow but we've we've been done for like an hour so presumably you would not ever call someone who's above you in the chain of command a blue falcon like this is something you use for people who are kind of at your level or um, I mean, it's it's also like similar to like a brown noser or a, um, you know, something like that. You can use it to describe people above you, but typically it would be somebody who's your peer is like either ah, acting like a blue falcon. What's interesting is that um, it sounds quite cool. It doesn't sound something, you know, uh, that you would say to somebody that you don't like. Like it, it is actually the opposite. It sounds like something really military or an operation or something. Yeah, I was shocked the first time I heard it. I thought like, oh, that's like, are they doing a good job? Like, that's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, no, that's bad. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. And I mean, it's also, I think, interesting to touch on the, like, the distinction between formal and like the way you speak in formally versus informally. Like, obviously, this is something you would say informally, but like at other times, presumably you have to speak super formally to the people around you. I think it's a good way also to, if you have to evaluate someone in a situation where you're not really supposed to swear, you can use it and people will understand what you actually mean. It's a way to dress up a term that isn't very, it's not, it, it's a more formal way, but still isn't super formal. It's, it, it's in a weird spot. I, I don't know anything about military, uh, in particular about the U.S. military, but so you, you, you're not supposed to swear in, a, in any situation? Is there a sort of rule? or Because maybe it could be the, the idea behind creating these ways of saying something without saying. Yes, yeah, so you're not supposed to swear really in any, in any formal situation, especially when uh, speaking with you know, superior officers mm -hmm. or um, even in just like formal uh, settings with peers. You're not really supposed to be swearing up a storm. It's not a good look. You're supposed to be acting professionally. But then in informal situations, swearing is rampant. <laughs> But, but Blue Falcon is like a is like an in between those two very formal where you have to be like the perfect gentleman versus the super informal when you're out in the woods running around complaining about everything that's going on. I'm thinking like in the in my professional settings. So like I if I'm hanging out like with my boss or my superiors at work outside of a work situation like. I can swear and speak crudely with them. Um, but obviously at the office, that's that's somewhat discouraged, although we of course still do it a, a decent amount anyway. But when you're like with a superior officer, are you, will you not swear with them in any setting or just if it's like a professional situation or like an official situation? 
It would definitely depend on who it is, um, right? So if there's some people who are very, very formal all the time because you are a, you know, you're a member of the military 24-7 with the haircuts and the hairstyles, you can't really hide. Um, and so it's it, it's a case-by-case -case basis. But then if it's someone you're very comfortable with, I've had captains who I'm comfortable swearing and talking about anything with. But very much at the workplace, it's supposed to be a clean language, like sanitized environment. Why is that? Um, I think it's definitely due to the fact that we're supposed to be a like profession of arms. It's supposed to be a very professional environment. Um, and I'm not, uh, and in fact, I'm pretty sure that's not what enlisted environments are like. Uh, but officer environments are supposed to be pretty um, professional. It's something that's ingrained in us is that it needs you need to carry yourself and represent yourself in a certain way, and that way is as professional person because that's that's where you work and that's how you're supposed to represent the organization that you work for. I guess do you feel that has an effect on the end goal, like on the war fighting capabilities of of the military? Like do you see the do you see a and product to that? Um, I definitely think it's like there's this, there's a conflict there where you're supposed to be one, very comfortable doing very violent things. Um, and then also, but doing them in a very professional manner where it's not you're running around and, you know, doing very harmful things to other people, even though you are carrying out a very violent act in most situations. So I, I think there's a tension and they try to walk the the line in between to maintain a uh, certain, I don't know exactly how to say it, but a certain reputation of being a professional fighting force as opposed to just a bunch of mercenaries running around doing whatever they want, which I, whether or not they walk that line very well is definitely debatable, but it's something that is uh, attempted for sure. I think, I mean, what it makes me think of is if you go beyond just the language the language factor, like the overall culture of formality, like with the marching and um, the like, the very strict routines, and maybe some of these military practices that have been going on for centuries and are like very familiar as symbols of the military to people outside the military. Um, like that all, I think, kind of feeds into what you're describing with like creating this culture of professionalism and also. A little bit of kind of sanitizing the actual, the the fairly unpleasant work of of being a war fighting army. Yeah, I, I would agree with that because the the acts that the military executes are violent, and you need to uh, have like a have certain reins on it. And there's all kinds of you know movies and books and stuff that talk about how it, the military sways back and forth between doing well at that and then doing very poorly, um, but. You know, the, the language does, I think, represent that where it, it uh, can vary widely between very formal and very unformal.
Andrew, we would like to use your expertise to touch base on some of the idioms that went from the military jargon to common language. For example, I found here, got your six. This is something that definitely comes from the military world. Would you like to tell us what it's all about? Uh, yeah, so that one is, is used pretty frequently. Um, so it's like, it means I got your back. Often that's for when we, when military unit consolidates on a location, you'll be assigned parts of a clock. You'll be assigned a certain time. And so like you'll assign certain groups from nine to 12 or from 12 to three or from three to nine. And um, I'm sure the shortening of that is just, I, I got your six, I got your back. I'm not sure if that would be used very much in um, by pilots. I, I think I'm in a, a somewhat of an infantry school right now. Um, so that's kind of what I'm, my mind is focused on, um, which is why I would bring it to like consolidation of infantry units. But it, that's definitely one that's, that's used around here and I've heard used. Yeah. Is it really helpful to divide, to, to use the clock whether, rather than saying behind you or on your right or something like that? Um, the, the clock's nice when you're consolidated. Um, so like you, you finish something because it just helps assign full security around your entire location. Um, it, it's just a little more clear as long as everybody knows where 12 is. <laughs> Could we say that no, not knowing where the 12 is would be a boot mistake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. I don't know exactly, but yeah. <laughs> Another idiom that started in the military and now, like, I think is very prominent in outside of the military is the, the expression, the whole nine yards. And I looked this up and what I found was it, it comes from um, the machine guns that were mounted on the sides of airplanes in World War II. And the belt of bullets that they would feed into the machine gun was nine yards long. So if you gave someone everything you had, you were giving them the full nine yards or the whole nine yards. I thought, I was like, I thought this is such a common idiom, but it actually didn't exist at all until World War II. And then for some reason, like in the 2000s, it became super, super popular. And so you hear it in American English, uh, like, like all the time. And initially I thought it must come from American football, but someone got confused because in American football, you try and achieve like the benchmark is to gain 10 yards at a time. And I thought like someone just made a mistake or like the rules used to be that you only had to get nine yards at a time, but it actually comes from these bullet, these machine gun belts, but you hear a lot. um, I don't know if it's still used in the, in the military at all, I guess. I definitely thought it was a sarcastic thing about saying like you gave it your all, but didn't quite make it. That's I thought it was a football term about you made it all nine yards, but couldn't quite get to the 10. So I'm, I'm actually pretty surprised it came from the military, but early 2000s, there's a, a movie called The Whole Nine Yards. It's a bad Matthew Perry movie. So that might, yeah. be, might be why it popped up again. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think I kind of vaguely, vaguely remember that. Another one that I think is kind of a one that you hear a lot and is used a, like very prominently is bite the bullet. It means like doing something very unpleasant in, in metaphorical terms. It means doing something very unpleasant and not complaining about it to just go through it without, without protesting at all. 
And apparently it came to prominence, prominence in American English from the uh, Civil War, from the American Civil War. But the question I wanted to, uh, wanted to ask about this was that kind of this usage of military expressions in everyday English, um, like, I don't know, I feel like it says something about the relationship between civilian life and military life, especially when you say something like got your six, and it goes back to what we were talking about before, but it feels like you're adding additional weight to what you're saying, because going back to what we were saying before with like military life and military culture having like this added professionalism to it and this really like regimented structured culture to it. Like if you're trying to impart that on a civilian situation, it seems like people might turn to a military idiom. For instance, if you said, okay, got it. That sounds civilian. But if I said, Roger that, that comes from the military originally, and it sounds more official and adds a certain structure to, to the, to the interaction. And I'm wondering if that's something you've observed, or if that's something that you notice, like, I assume you hear people use some military jargon outside of the military world as well, Andy. Yeah, I definitely think that's somewhat generational. Um, People my parents' age and a little younger don't tend to use military jargon. The place I think of military jargon the most would be people my grandparents' age who um, were, you know, willingly or unwillingly drafted. And so there was a certain um, connection I think a lot of a lot of men that age have where that's where they picked up a lot of language and they, it's where they picked up a lot of their structure, like my grandfather always clean shaved. He shaved twice a day to make sure it was, you know, nice. I'd always had a, a, a pretty tight haircut. And there were a lot of his friends who you know, they all served together. And they they used a lot more military jargon um, than people like my parents' age or even or even younger. Um, so I, I really would uh, attest it to that. Uh, the fact that there were large swaths of the population that all served together at the same time with similar experience and brought some of that, I think, back home with them. Interesting. It's not something I'd thought of because we don't have, we certainly haven't had a situation where a large percentage of the population has been in the military at any one time in the U.S. in in, uh, 50 years, basically now. So I wanted to also kind of look at this from a a cross-cultural angle as well. And I wanted to ask Marcello if there's in Italian, uh, if you find people using military jargon in Italian, or if this is something that is more limited to English, and in this case, American English, in your experience. Ethan, this is a good question. Uh, I've been thinking about this uh, a bit, and I can, maybe there are, but I can't recall any of them. If we go by Andrew's theory, in which a large amount of the population got together because of the of the draft. Also, it is not the case anymore. But by the time my grandfather would do it, not everyone was speaking Italian. They were mostly speaking dialects. So it would be a little bit more difficult, you know, to come up with uh, a set of idioms, of expressions that then would be used by everyone in Italy. But that's another theory. It's not uh, something that we can really that we can really prove. So there is a, a big militarization of the language, but talking about specific jargon, jargon 
I cannot say this word. Talking about specific jargon, I can't recall anything particular in Italian. So I think that's interesting because, I mean, I think it's not so controversial to say that U.S. civilian society, like, is more, it might not be more militarized, but there's certainly more kind of military adoration in the U.S. than there is in a lot of other countries, um, or at least, like, military is certainly a, a large part of, of American culture, I, I think it's safe to say, and, um, like, I think part of it is also potentially that Americans civilians like to use military language also because it it's a bit aspirational I find like people think it's cool to be to like act like a like a soldier or talk like a soldier right um so when you say Roger that like you're you're acting like you're part of a, a something a little bit bigger in a very subtle small way like we fought a lot of wars um and for the past for a long time like the U.S. has been pretty actively engaged in in a war or some kind of conflict somewhere or other in the world. And so I think like you can certainly see that people are probably seeing the military on the news and reading about the military uh, and reading about the different wars that the U.S. is in more so than like you would be in a similar situation in Italy necessarily. It is now time for our game, The Idiot's Gambit. Andrew, be prepared because we're gonna tell you one idiom and three stories. Only one of them is going to be the right one. And you need to guess what is what in order not to be a boot on The Idiot's Gambit. <laughs> All right. So today's idiom for The Idiot's Gambit is the idiom Pyrrhic Victory. And that means a victory where the cost of the victory is so great that it outweighs the benefits of the victory. Andy, are you ready to hear the stories? I am prepared. All right, story number one. The expression pure victory comes from the Greek word pyro. Specifically, Greek generals were taught that a true victory meant not only defeating the enemy, but doing so while minimizing the loss of life for their own army. In 388 BC, the Spartan king, Agesipolis I, sent a large army to fight the rival city-state Corinth. The Spartan army defeated the Corinthian army, but nearly all of the Spartan soldiers were killed in the uh, process. Agesipolis I, furious at his general for losing the, the entire Spartan army, ordered the general burnt alive. Hence, the term Pyrrhic victory was a victory that resulted in pyro, or fire. Story number two. King Pyrrhus of Epirus thought that the upstart Italian city-state called Rome could be an easy conquest for his seasoned Greek phalanxes and war elephants. His 40,000 soldiers met the Roman army at the Italian city of Asculum, a city now known as Marche. King Pyrrhus's army won the battle, but a large number of soldiers and commanders were killed in the process. After the battle, a commander congratulated King Pyrrhus on his victory, to which King Pyrrhus responded, one more victory and I will be ruined. Hence, the expression Pyrrhic victory comes from the name Pyrrhus. And finally, number three. The expression Pyrrhic victory shares a, a root with the word inspire, which comes from the Latin word inspirare. After winning a battle despite devastating losses, the Romans would call it an 
inspired victory, which applied that they had only won through divine intervention. As is so often the case, the word passed through various languages before reaching its current usage, including Old English, Old French, Middle English, and Middle French. Finally, it arrived at today's pronunciation in 1675 when it was used in a poem called The Sphere of Marcus Manilius by Edward Shelburne, who wrote, the generous Brutus her enfranchiser, Papirius, who revenged the Pyrrhic War. So, does Pyrrhic victory come from lighting a general on fire after winning a battle but losing most of his troops? Two, uh, does it come from the name King Pyrrhus, who lost a bat, who won a battle but it cost him most of his army? Or three, does it come from the root inspirare, meaning? that divine intervention was involved in allowing one side to win the battle. Andy, those are your options, and let us know what you think. So based on the three options, the third one I think is too much of your sense of humor to pass it through all those languages, so I think you made that one up. Um, just b- bouncing from, from language to language, and you were also kind of laughing as you explained it. So I don't think it's the third one. The, the first one... I, th- I don't think it's spelled like pyro, but I'm not sure because I'm a terrible speller. So I'm a little, I'm a little hesitant to think it has to do with burning a general alive after, but it's, it's that one, that one is tempting, but I'm going to have to go with the second one about the, the talking about how, if, if you were to have another victory, it would cost them immensely or i can't exactly remember but i I think it is the second one marcello did andy win andy you guess correctly it was pyrrhus the king of epirus pyrrhus king of epirus fantastic (laughs) ethan you put a lot of effort into this i love (laughs) i love writing these So, so to clarify for, for anyone listening who's curious what I just said that was true and what isn't true, there was a king, Agesipolis, the first. He did fight the Corinthians in 388. He did not burn any generals alive. The second one with King Pyrrhus, all of that one is true, because that was the correct answer. Um, and for number three with Inspirare, uh, that did get, the word inspire did get to English through uh, English and then French, Old English, Middle French, back to contemporary English. But it has nothing to do with Pyrrhic and people who can spot a Greek root versus a a Latin root would know know to stay away from that one. But but you're correct that the, the number two was correct. And then I had to pull some true things from the other two to make them sound, try and sound more, more reasonable. Uh, the first one was it was close. I just the think first that one is, like it sounds like it sounds like something that should be true because it's like it sounds like something out of Game of Thrones, and you think in Game of Thrones that must have come from somewhere, right? Like it has to come from a true story. At least that's what I was hoping to. That's how I was trying to trick you. It was close. About about got me. Thanks everyone for joining us on another episode of Idiots with Idioms. We hope you enjoyed. Uh, Thank you very much in particular to Andy Hoffman uh, for adding his insights on military culture and language. Thank you to my co-host Marcello. Uh, Remember to 
follow us on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And when you leave a review, try and use a fun idiom in the review, and then we can feature your review on the show and talk about the idiom. Thank you, everyone. See you on the next episode of Idiots with Idioms, the home of the Calpatian era.